0: Matthew chapter 12. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priest? Or have you not read in the law on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what it means... I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now he went on from there and entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? And he said to them, Which one of you who has a sheep, if he falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out. And it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees, they went out and conspired against him how to destroy him.
1: Sometimes Sunday mornings, a day of rest, can be a day of hurried stress, dizziness, and perhaps that might be something that we struggle with all through the week, isn't it? We're going from one thing to another, and often these are good things and fulfilling the calling that God has for us. But do we stop and be still and rest? That's what we sang about in Psalm 46. And we rest, as we saw last week in Matthew 11, By trusting in Christ and his finished work for our salvation. Our souls are burdened. We are heavy laden. And we bring all those burdens to our Savior. Casting them on Jesus. And being humbled with our absolute prideful self-reliance. Dying by the grace of God. As we see once again that we need to slow down, reflect, and repent. To help us do this, the Lord has given us one day in seven. Do you know that? God knows our struggles even more than we do, and he's given us a Sabbath day, the Lord's day, a day to stop, to take a break from the noise and the busyness. Maybe at times in your life you've taken a break from technology or a break from the treadmill of work. Well, one day in seven, we are to take this rest and worship and enjoy the Lord, in particular on the Lord's Day. That particular day, the Sabbath, in today's world, there's all sorts of different opinions on how people see it, but back in Jesus' day, there was an enormous amount of tension. That's what we see in this passage. The scribes and Pharisees are fundamentally misunderstanding that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Jesus has just said, I want you to learn from me. Now we see, what does it mean to learn from Jesus? He is the Lord of the Sabbath. And we see his authority and his mercy that he demonstrates on this particular day. First, the declaration of authority Jesus makes. When I say the word Sabbath, there could be all sorts of things that come to your mind. Maybe bad ideas. Maybe really burdensome unbiblical ideas, maybe a a delightful idea. We want to ask, though, what does Jesus teach about this? To do that, we go back to the beginning. Children, do you know that God created the world in six days, and he rested on the seventh, Not because he was tired, but to give a pattern for us, how we are to live. So when we live in this way, we are imitating the God who made us for himself. Not only was the Sabbath given at creation, but in Exodus 20, the fourth commandment says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. The Lord your God has given you this day. Children, imagine that you were living at that time in Exodus 20. Do you know where God's people were for 400 years before that? They were slaves in Egypt. They never had a day off, let alone a vacation. And now God says, I'm going to give you 52 days of mandatory rest every year. What an amazing gift this is. In the Old Testament, two of the things that marked Israel off were circumcision and the Sabbath. And those controversies over those things erupt in the New Testament, don't they? Why? Well, we're going to see why. Here is Jesus on the Lord's Day Sabbath. So at this point in Matthew 12, it's still Saturday, the seventh day. As he and his disciples come home, maybe from a synagogue worship, gathering together, they're hungry, much like we get hungry after lunch or after church, before lunch. And they're walking through the grain fields. This kind of seems weird to us because we don't walk through fields going home. And if you do, someone might call the police and say you're trespassing. But in that day, there are no fences, and it's probably the harvest time of year. There's food out there in the field, and the disciples pick some and eat. And in Deuteronomy 23, the provision of the law was that's okay to do. Now, don't take the whole field and bring it home, but have a little bit of food if you're hungry. As Jesus and the disciples are eating, who shows up? The Pharisees, you're wondering, where do these guys come from? Are they hiding in the bushes? Are they spying them out? They accused Jesus and his disciples here of what? Do you see that? Of sin. Of breaking God's law. There was no law against what Jesus and the disciples were doing, but the Pharisees had added all of these extra laws to God's law. Some of them were written down later in the Mishnah, and the Talmud, after the time of Christ. Many of those things were orally passed down, the Pharisees said, from others before. But it was never in God's word. One of the laws they had, and there were many regarding the Sabbath, was that if you look and see a gray hair, you can't pluck it out. How many of us have done that this morning? Why? Because that would be reaping. And you can't reap or Grind or gather crops on the Sabbath? Jesus, you and your disciples are sinning. How does Jesus respond? Isn't it amazing that your Savior teaches you in his response to those who charge him with sin how we are to respond? That's a remarkable thing here. Jesus doesn't reply in anger or being self defensive. What does he do? He asks a question. Have you Pharisees not read? Well, read what? About David and the priest and the bread back in the Old Testament. And the Pharisees would have said, of course we've read it. We maybe have memorized it. First Samuel 21. Do you know this story? That's what Jesus refers to here. God had rejected Saul from being king. David was to serve as king, but wasn't yet anointed as king. Saul was still serving. He was anointed, but not yet serving. Saul has a raging envy. He wants to kill David. So David and his men have to run for their lives from Saul and from the Philistines. They're running and they're hungry. And they come to a place called Nob. The tabernacle is there, just outside of Jerusalem. They enter this house of God, they come there and they ask the priest, We're starving. Do you have anything to eat? Something in the refrigerator, leftovers, we'll take anything. Well, the tabernacle is not a grocery store, so why would they think there'd be food there? There was food there. Not food that they would eat, but the bread of the presence, it's called. Leviticus 24. God had this bread in the tabernacle on a golden table. And every Sabbath, there would be 12 loaves of hot bread in two different rows lined up, reminding Israel God is their bread, God is their provider, God is their strength. 12 loaves, 12 tribes of Israel. The priests had to eat all of that bread, they couldn't just distribute it to anyone, it had special significance. David said to the priest, you know what? We are starving. I understand this bread is not supposed to be for me. We're hungry. So what would the priest do? What would you have done? Would you have fed those hungry men? The priest, in an incredible act of mercy, his name was Abimelech, fed them. Of course he would. It's an act of mercy. Jesus says, Pharisees, you know about that, right? And then he asked another question, Matthew 12, verse 5. How about those priests? Do they work on the Sabbath? Isn't that interesting what Jesus is saying? Of course the priests would teach and pray. And back then, children, they would slaughter animals and bring them to the sacrifice. And they would have to offer the burnt offering and change that bread around. Of course they're working. If the true meaning of the Sabbath is you shall never work, the priests work so hard that it would be like desecrating the Sabbath. But are they? No, they're guiltless. The law knows priorities, Jesus is saying. The law itself shows that there are restrictions on the Sabbath superseded by the priests because worship took precedent. They had to work. That's what they did. What does all that mean? The temple is greater than the Sabbath. But how would that apply to the situation with Jesus, his disciples, and eating that grain in that field? Only if someone is greater than the temple itself. Do you see that passage in Matthew 12, verse 6? One of the most significant verses to unpack biblically, theologically, that we don't have time to do entirely today if you want a whole theology of this, check out Greg Beale, The Temple and the Church's Mission. There's a lot in this one verse. Who could be possibly greater than the temple children? Well, Jesus Himself, the one who brings in the Messianic Age. Part of what Jesus is doing is establishing the new temple that is Himself. He is the new creation. Now, what does that mean? Do you remember a few weeks back? Jesus forgave sins. Who could forgive sins but God alone? Where was the forgiveness of sins happening before Christ? In the temple, right? With those sacrifices. Now Jesus comes and says, I am the sacrifice. I am the offering. Jesus says, I'm greater than Jonah, later in Matthew 12. I'm greater than Solomon. I'm greater than the temple. Not only because forgiveness is found in me, but because God's presence is found in Christ in a much greater way than God's presence even was in the temple. Later in Matthew, Jesus will cleanse the temple. Do you remember that? Why did he do that? Because they had made the temple into a commercial economic boon. They'd missed the whole point that this was a house of prayer for the nations. This is worshiping the Lord. That's the focus. And after he cleanses the temple, who comes into the temple? The lame and the blind, those who were forbidden by the Pharisees to come. Jesus here is saying, my healings as I heal those who are sick and blind and lame demonstrate spiritual disease that is healed through the forgiveness that I offer through my own shed blood. The old temple dies, the sacrificial system, and Jesus dies on the cross. The new temple arises. The body of Christ arises. The temple is a house of prayer for the nations. Christ is greater than the temple. It was a statement that Jesus made in John when he said, I will destroy this temple and build it again in three days. Remember what Mark's gospel says? That was what They said, prove that Jesus deserved death. There's a lot going on at the temple. The temple is God's presence in the Garden of Eden. It's then in the tabernacle and temple. Christ is the true temple. And now, beloved, you are living stones in the temple of God. The Spirit of God is building his church now. It will culminate in the new heaven and the new earth. Jesus is the presence of God with us. So what's the point? Back to the dispute. Well, Pharisees, Jesus says, I'm not bound by your interpretation of the law. Something greater than the temple is here. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I am the one in the fourth commandment that gave you that law. I'm standing before you. I rule over the rules. (laughs) He doesn't change the law but he has authority to forgive sins, authority over what happens on the Sabbath. The Sabbath, Jesus says in Mark 2, was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. A parallel passage, Mark 2, 27, meaning God made the Sabbath day for people, not people for the Sabbath. The seventh-day Sabbath in the Old Testament wasn't the high point of the creation week in Genesis, was it? Man was. God created them male and female. In the image of God, he created them. We live in a culture that doesn't believe that. A Romans one world. But God's word is true. The Sabbath itself is made for the benefit of God's people. That's the point. This is not a day of drudgery. How do you know that? Because Christ has authority. Secondly, how do you know that? Because Jesus shows mercy. The Lord of the Sabbath gives a demonstration of mercy. Was it merciful for that high priest in 1 Samuel to give that bread to David and his hungry men? Yes, it was. Look at what happens in the passage next. Even more mercy. We're not sure how long after The incident in the grain fields, this next part of Matthew 12 takes place. But in verse 9, it's another synagogue, Sabbath day. Matthew at this point arranges things more topically than chronologically. So he's telling you something here in these stories. Luke tells us, where was Jesus on the Sabbath? In the synagogue, teaching and worshiping. Beloved, that's where we ought to be every Lord's Day unless providentially hindered. With God's people in corporate worship. As you do that, you are reflecting Christ himself who honors the day. Well, he's teaching, a man is there at the synagogue with a withered hand. This is very visually real for us to see. A withered hand means shriveled, paralysis. It means it can't be used. And Luke says it's his right hand, the hand often most used for the person's work. He suffered a lot. And here on the synagogue, Sabbath day, who shows up again? The Pharisees. Are these the same guys that were there a few verses earlier? We're not sure. But whoever they are, they are concerned for what? Do you notice? Not for this poor man with his withered hand, but they want to catch Jesus in a sin. The Pharisees say to Jesus, verse 10, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? How does Jesus respond? With another question. Do you notice that? Here he does it again. If you have a sheep, it falls into a pit. It's the Sabbath day. Are you going to go help it out? That sheep is bawling. It's going crazy. It's nervous. It's sweating. Would you help it? Of course you would. Is a person more valuable than an animal? Of course. See how this is, again, in the face of our culture. Do we honor the animals and love the creation God made? Of course. Not more than God himself and not more than a person. But we are to be stewards of what God made, yeah. But Jesus' point is, okay, if a sheep that's in trouble should be helped, how much more someone who is suffering should be helped on the Sabbath day with mercy? Luke tells us what happens next. Is it right to do good and to save life on the Sabbath? Or should you do evil, Pharisees? Do you know how they respond in Luke's gospel? Jesus looks around, a pregnant pause, an awkward pause. They don't respond at all. He asks a question they can't answer. Why? Because the Pharisees had made the Sabbath into a day of fearful legalism. For them, the Sabbath is all about what you don't do. Maybe that's been your experience, sadly, growing up. On the Sabbath, you don't do this, and you don't do that, and you better not do this. That's the Pharisee's view. Just don't screw things up. That's the goal. Don't do stuff today. Jesus knows what they're thinking, Luke says. Their thoughts. He knows our thoughts. And Mark tells us something even further, deeper. That Jesus knows. Mark 3, 5. Jesus looks at the Pharisees with anger. Grieved at their hardness of heart. Your Savior has perfect emotions. This is not sinful anger. This is Christ's righteous anger. You Pharisees don't think God wants to help people on the Sabbath. He says that and he knows that. Jesus, even as they are not saying it out loud. Do you know what a hard heart is? As one pastor says. It's a heart that willfully refuses to repent and to change. Purposely not trusting God. Rebelling. That's God's command. I don't care. I'm going to disobey it and pretend it doesn't exist. It's being stiff-necked. When I was a kid, I went One time with my dad to a camp, and I woke up the next day, and my neck neck was stiff. Any of you had that happen? And I was walking around for like five days like this, but I didn't even really know it. It was stiff, and it was crooked, and I couldn't move it. A stiff-necked, hard-hearted person is always looking for ways to accuse someone else, ready to pounce on them. Look at our own hearts here, someone in our family, a friend, a friend someone at school, a church, family member, someone in our neighborhood, a coworker. That's what the Pharisees did to Jesus. How can I pounce? How can I get you? A hard heart. Remember Pharaoh in the Old Testament? Having this is way worse than a withered hand. Willfully rejecting the Lord is a high-handed sin, loved ones, that deserves hell. Hebrews says when you hear God's voice in his word, don't harden your hearts. Get on your knees, repent, ask God, soften my heart, protect me from a rebellious, self-centered will that always thinks about me, that always thinks I'm right. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. The Pharisees don't reply. They say nothing, as Jesus knows their heart. Matthew twelve thirteen. Jesus speaks to the man with the shriveled hand. Mark and Luke bring this out. He tells him to come to the middle of the room. So if it was today, there'd be a circle kind of like setting, he would come to the middle, something he would not want to do. None of us would want to do. That's embarrassing. If you are there that day, your necks are looking, you're kind of trying to peer around your kids, what is going to happen here? Jesus tells the man, stretch out your hand. From the lips of anyone else, that would be the most cruel thing you could ever say. He can't do it. That's impossible. His hand is atrophied. And by the time he stretches out his hand, he's completely healed. The hand is as sound and healthy as the other hand. Elsewhere, Jesus heals with a word or a touch. Here, he heals with his will. This is God. No one else could do this. This is God in the flesh. A miracle, a brand new hand. The Sabbath is about doing good. Jesus doesn't want the Pharisees to like him He wants to do good for this man. If you have Pharisees in your life, they will never like you unless you're a Pharisee, Kevin DeYoung says. Isn't that true? How would those Pharisees respond? Verse 14. They just saw a miracle. Would that soften their hard hearts? Luke brings it out even more. They are filled with rage. They're flipped out. It's a madness of a sort. They've lost control over their minds. They are so zealous to be right and defend their interpretation of the law that they have lost all sense of the mercy of God. Have you ever heard someone say, if only I saw Jesus do a miracle before me, I would believe? That's often not true. The Pharisees, so many, saw this. Their hearts were hard. They didn't believe. In fact, they wanted to kill Jesus for this. Think of how Matthew arranges this. What was going on just before this? The grain, a reference to David, First Samuel 21. If Jesus is the one who is greater than David, who then are the Pharisees, according to Matthew 12? In that story with Jesus, uh, with, with David and Saul and the Old Testament showbread. Who would the Pharisees be? They'd be Saul, right? Raging in envy, trying to kill David. What else happened in that passage? 1 Samuel 21. There was an Edomite named Doeg who spied on the meeting between David and his men and Ahimelech the high priest and the showbread. And what did Doeg do? He reported it to Saul and at Saul's command, the high priest, or the priest in that they were slaughtered. The Pharisees are like those spies who slaughtered the priests of God. They're trying to find a way to kill Jesus. And they choose, according to Mark and Luke, as their co-conspirators, Herod and his family. They hated Herod and his family up to this point. Those guys were enemies. The Pharisees have the religious power. Herod has the political power. That's a perfect fit. Maybe Herod can help us to kill Jesus. Rather than preserving life on the Sabbath, they are looking for a way to take it. They're calling good evil and evil good. This is evil, what they're doing. They are claiming to defend the law of God, and they are seeking to kill the one whose righteousness is reflected in the law itself, Jesus, God incarnate. What made them so angry? Jesus exposed their lack of love and mercy for someone in need. But even more... This is not about the Sabbath, is it, ultimately? It's about much more. It's about Jesus' claims to be the Messiah, to be the Lord of the Sabbath, to have God's authority to forgive sins, that the only way to come to the Father is by faith in Jesus. That's what enraged them. What does this mean for us today? Is Jesus the Lord of your life? and the lord of the sabbath. Jesus says, "Learn from me." Matthew 11:29. I'm giving you rest. Do you notice that Jesus doesn't throw out the sabbath? He doesn't say only 9 of the 10 commandments apply, let's just chuck it. He frees the sabbath from incorrect interpretations. He purifies it from these man-made legalistic traditions, but he doesn't toss it out. The fourth commandment is a a blessing to us loved ones. There's changes. We're going to look at that in just a second in light of Christ. But this is not a burden. Jesus doesn't want us to put rules around rules for other people, Kevin DeYoung says. That's one application. What does that mean? Where the Bible has a command, we don't budge. The fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath day. But we don't add our particular nuances and preferences to that and then lay that on someone as a burden. The Sabbath tells us what we must do worship and rest, what we must not do work. Yes, there are works of necessity police and hospital workers and farmers. Don't try to make this legalistic, but understand what the Sabbath says. We don't want to become formalistic. And miss love, mercy, grace, and forgiveness. Here's DeYoung again God is not impressed by our church attendance or Lord's Day keeping if I am an uncaring, unloving, intimidating jerk and pain in the neck to be around. You know Joe, right? Yeah, he has zero fruit of the Spirit in his life, but boy, does he go to church. See the problem with that? What? What does our Lord's Day look like? Is our heart breaking over the sufferings of others? At this church, we want to be gospel-centered, biblically faithful, loving the law of God as those in Christ, humble followers and lovers of God and people. That's what we're about here. How does that impact how we view this, meaning this, the Lord's Day? Most people don't care about the Lord's Day at all today. It's the other side of the pendulum. It's like, well, I'll go to church if everything else doesn't get in the way. Right? We know that in our hearts. This is not about a guilt trip, but remembering this question. On the Lord's Day, Sunday, does the activity that I'm wondering about hinder or promote my participation in worship? That's one question to ask. If it causes us to miss worship, there's our answer. Does it help promote mercy on the day? This is a day when, yes, you can do this every day of the week, but you're freed in God to visit perhaps a shut-in, to show hospitality when the rest of your week is filled with the callings you have, to spend time with people that need encouragement, to not just talk about mercy, but to show mercy. We can be too busy to love, can't we? Too busy to care. You have the Sabbath day. It's a day above all else to be reminded of the gospel, to rest in the finished work of Christ for you. The man's shriveled hand is an indication of our shriveled hearts, and our heart hearts. God, I can't change my heart any more than that man can change his hand. But Jesus, you can. And by your spirit, you do. Your identity is in Christ, loved ones. You and I have only so many days to live before you see Christ. Every Lord's Day is a day where we ask, how this day can I remember the Lord of the day? Am I the Lord of the day? No, Christ is. A part of our worldview. The Lord's day is for you. Meaning it's a day of grace for you. It's a gift of God for you. In his love, he's given it to you. A day to be distinguished from everything else you do normally during the week. Freed from your ordinary labor. Gathering with your church family. Receiving the word. Showing hospitality. A witness to the world around you that God has purchased you in Christ. Your neighbor thinks, why is he going to church? Look at the day out today. There's a million things I'd rather do than go there. By you going, that's a witness to the world of your identity in Jesus. It's the inbreaking of the heavenly Sabbath rest that gives shape to your meaning in your life. It brings order to our families and how we live. It's it's a day to remember the blessing of God for you. Hebrews says. You don't remember every family meal, do you, growing up, kids? Nor do you remember every Lord's Day or every sermon. The value is not in the specifics, but in the gathering. That God is here. God is present in this place. We are worshiping the living God who made us, who loves us. We are here because of grace, not coming because of some legalistic guilt, And we are here on the first day. This is not the seventh day Old Testament Sabbath. This is the Sunday Lord's Day. Jesus has risen from the dead. You come to feast in Christ on His Word and Sacrament. You're not caught up in a meaningless flow of days without end. History has a beginning and an ending, a judgment. Jesus will return. The first day, the resurrection, the day of the new creation, points you to that final day of Christ's return. On this day, ask this question. What does God want to give you? God invented this day to be a blessing to his people. May you rejoice in the Lord of the Sabbath. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all of God's people said, amen.